Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today I'm going to speak with Jason Gonzalez with Oregon Wild. Welcome, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be on the show. What is your position with Oregon Wild? Yeah, I am Oregon Wild's forest and watershed campaign organizer. So that basically means that I do um, community organizing uh, around specific issues involving forest and stream health. Now, uh, Oregon Wild is uh, a statewide organization, and your office is in Eugene. What What is the mission of Oregon Wild? Well, Oregon Wild, our mission is that we work to protect Oregon's wildlands, wildlife, and waters for future generations. And you're right, we are a statewide organization. I think we like to refer to ourselves as the uh, largest and oldest state-level conservation group here in Oregon. And we do have a few offices, and I mostly, when I'm in an office, I do work out of Eugene, but that's only basically for, for fast Internet. And fortunately, my office is usually the coast range and coastal communities of the northern half of the Oregon coast. So you're in the coast range, and that's where I live, too, in the coast range. And I think today we're going to want to talk about the Oregon Forest Practices Act, otherwise known as the OFPA. And these are the set of regulations that govern logging on private non-federal lands and also on state lands. Anything that's non-federal is governed under the regulations of the Oregon Forest Practices Act. Do I have that right? Yeah, and the other land types that get swooped in there, you mentioned private and state-owned lands. And in a much smaller portion, but it does make up some of it, there are lands that are owned by the counties of Oregon, and then a very small percentage of lands overseen by the OFPA are owned by tribes or are tribal lands that still fall under um, the OFPA. So, yeah, that's about... Um, it's about 40% of Oregon's forests um, that fall under the jurisdiction of the Oregon Forest Practices Act. In general, how much weaker is the Oregon Forest Practices Act from the federal land? Yeah, you know, the difference I think is bigger than a lot of people realize. Uh, just this morning here in the Oregon Wild Office, my colleague and I were looking at some pictures that, that he had uh, from a a federal timber sale where this uh, small stream ended up making an enormous difference in protecting the forest. And as somebody who mostly works under the jurisdiction of the OFPA, like me, it's always really shocking uh, when, I, when I'm working with my colleagues who do work more on federal lands um, because the the stream that we were looking at, the pictures of, if it was on land that is governed under the OFPA, um, clear-cut logging would have been allowed to go right over the top of that stream with no protections. And it's even very likely that it was so small that in the summertime it would have been dry after being exposed to the sun, and then aerial spraying of herbicides would have also happened right over the top of that. But since that tiny stream was on federal land, we were discussing that it would be getting um, basically one tree height of, of protection, which, um, you know, depending on the location, could mean that that small a small stream of water that gets no protection from clear-cut logging under OFPA could get anywhere from, you know, 80 to 150 feet of stream buffer left on each side of it under federal law. So it, the difference is, is enormous. And um, 
we see that in a number of different ways, like you said, not just on how streams are protected, but in how trees themselves and wildlife habitat are protected. And so the differences are extreme, and one of the really startling statistics I like to share with people, and this comes from, from multiple studies confirmed at the Oregon State University by, by Oregon State University researchers, is that on under the OFPA, on average, about 74% of Oregon's stream network is unprotected from clear-cut logging. Um, and so that's the, the, the incredible amount of our streams that are these much smaller streams that are steep um, that don't actually get any protection. All of those streams would have some level of protection uh, were they on federal land. And additionally, in some parts of the state, trees over a certain size on federal land would be protected. Um, and other resources that, that get no consideration on private lands. 74% of streams in almost half our Oregon forests have no protection from clear-cut logging. And, of course, many of these streams are dry uh, part of the year, but much of the year they have water in them that flows downstream into fish habitat. Yeah, especially in the coast range. And, you know, I want to add to that number, 74% is the statewide average. Down in your neighborhood, I mean, not quite your neighborhood, but but a little more in your neighborhood than mine, the highest percentage found in that project, that research project that I'm referring to, was actually some base, was actually the North Umpqua Basin, which had, went as high as 84% of a stream network um, that would be that would be unprotected under OFPA. Why are those buffers important? Why do we need buffers on those small streams? Well, yeah, as any angler could tell you, uh, you don't want to be uh, looking for healthy fish in the Oregon coast in an area where there's a lot of exposure um, to sun. You know, we see um, not only do those buffers do the obvious thing of shading the stream and keeping temperatures down, which is important to all stream species, but especially those really well-known ones like salmon and steelhead, um, and bull trout as well. A lot of the uh, most important species of fish in Oregon when it comes to our economy are actually incredibly reliant on very cold water. And just being a fraction of a degree over what they can tolerate can end up causing uh, you know, large fish kills where huge amounts of population uh, die. But in addition to the temperature changes, the way that the streams are protected has a huge impact on how much, uh, you know, basically how much sediment can get into that stream by flowing downhill off of the cleared land. Uh, that mud and silt as it gets into the water, not only is it stripping that soil that we really need on those hillsides to grow our next generation of forest, but when it gets into the stream, it's doing things like choking up the water to make it challenging for fish to breathe, but also the silt and sediment can really fill in the gravel beds that salmon and other species rely on for spawning. So we have a, a huge impact on the fish that are already in the stream, which impacts on the eggs of the fish that should be in the stream in the future. And then, of course, uh, you know, with things like high flows and the big storms that we're seeing more and more these days in the winter, we think that we also probably have major downstream impacts um, from high and low flows of water. So in, the, in these winter storms that are big, when there's less stream buffering, um, there's a lot more uh, flashiness to the stream where it can really come up and cause more flooding and more runoff and then, um, and then different impacts later in the year with things like drying earlier, um, running out of water, um, or, or just plain hot water that fills up with, with algae and, and mosses and other things that you know, can really make it just kind of an unpleasant place to be for, for fish or people.
the uh, I know I was going to ask. So, why does it matter what others do on their private lands? But I think I'm getting from your conversation that what happens on private land doesn't stay on your private land, and that this is all uh, public resources that flow through each of our lands, like water, birds, fish, and such. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know a lot of. I think one one thing that a lot of people can understand really easily is that you know we all know water flows downhill, and there's um, you know there's not a there's not a fence or a property line that's going to stop it. Um, you know I think that that we all, especially in Oregon, really understand that water doesn't stay in one place and it moves. But I think that uh, an experience that a lot of us have that I personally deal with that really that really drives the point home is that, you know, in Oregon, most people are getting their drinking water from from surface water sources, meaning streams and reservoirs, and not well water. And so for using my own property as the example, we have a very small stream that runs in a gully behind our house, but it's run year-round for as long as people have been living there, um, which has been for an awfully long time. And we've never had any problem getting our drinking water from that stream. Fortunately, at this time, the head wall of our stream has never been logged before, um, and it actually has some really beautiful, healthy, uh, mature forest growing back there. But other neighbors of mine haven't had such luck, and and when their head walls of their drinking water streams have been logged, of course, the impacts of what their neighboring landowner has done on their land above them, um, it just doesn't stay. It just doesn't stay there, and so that sediment, um, that hot water, the potential erosion, um, and other problems that can come with clear-cut logging especially just end up getting delivered right down to those downstream neighbors. And then they continue down all throughout the system. So one of the big concerns that comes with clear-cutting is a hard edge of forest along the edge. Um, when those uh, winds blow, they hit that edge really hard, and so they can end up having an enormous impact on their neighboring landowners' trees because of that hard edge where they don't leave some trees to slow the wind down. That blowdown can be a huge problem. And then later we see problems like, um, like a, you know, we can have impacts on things like wildlife movement and ending up with the wildlife wanting to move differently because they're impacted by a clear cut. And then one of the biggest impacts that we see as neighboring landowners comes after they've clear cut any piece of land and they they often the especially the bigger corporate owners um, they actually come in for several years after a clear cut and apply herbicides uh, to kill off any of the plants or shrubs or other things that might want to grow aside from the species of, of usually Douglas fir that they've planted very often they're applying those herbicides from a helicopter in the sky. So, of course, if you're a neighboring landowner, um, it's very hard to feel like a, a helicopter um, quite a ways up in the sky can be spraying a fine mist of toxic chemicals, and it's not something that, that puts you at risk as somebody right next door. So if there's all these different impacts um, that, that start on, on somebody else's land but very quickly leave their land and come onto mine or yours or anybody else in our communities. Um, and, and some of those things have to do with water, but there's actually a whole host of different impacts that, that just don't stay where they start because that's just not the nature of our forests. So if a private company clear-cuts their land and, and then their soil comes onto your property and their aerial spraying comes onto your property, isn't that considered trespass? You know, that's what you would think, but it turns out that some of these things um some of these things can be incredibly hard to document and prove. 
when we've had um, we've had a number of cases in Oregon in the last five or ten years um, where there seems to be a strong indication from landowner that um, that there was something like chemical drift or chemical trespass, um, but it's incredibly hard to prove because you don't necessarily know what they sprayed, so you can't for it. Um, it's incredibly hard to find out what they spray or when they're going to spray. And so it makes it really hard for us to be able to monitor and prove that it happens. And Oregon has seems to have set a very high bar um, that requires um, a, a very high burden of proof on, on a person who may have that chemical trespass happening against them. We have had some instances where it has been proven um, that it happens, and we have a, a solid body of research that demonstrates the drift happens. Um, when it comes to other things like um, like something like one of the impacts that I discussed was 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 tree blowdown, and then you're not necessarily dealing um, with a trespass of something that can be proven because basically um, the way that they've impacted your land is by by changing their land so dramatically that the way the natural world impacts impacts our land um, as a neighboring landowner might dramatically change, and that might cost you um, timber that you planned on on logging more ecologically in the future um, and has a dollar value input, um, or that might have something that might cause just impacts to shade or just your desire to have a healthy, mature forest um, that isn't being blown down by high winds and unbuffered forests. Isn't there a law in Oregon called the Right to Farm Act? Yeah, there's a, there is an interesting law in Oregon that it's called the Right to Farm and Forest Act, and and that that really is where we see that super high bar set that makes it so hard to deal with some of our issues that we consider that a lot of us consider a trespass onto our property, um, and it's really been used to silence um, you know a lot of the complaints. I think one of the other really unfortunate things that we see with that blowdown effect, and I've seen this in my community um, with some neighbors and also and also with a local school is that the blowdown effect is often used by the company who's going to do the logging to really pressure a neighboring landowner into doing a, into doing a logging on their own property that they weren't expecting to do and may not want to do. Um, in fact, we had a clear cut happening nearby one of our properties, and um, the company that owned that was planning to do that uh, put a put a huge campaign on us to allow them to log our trees um, because you might as well because they're all going to blow down anyways, and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh-huh. so you can imagine a landowner um, feeling that pressure of, well, I can deal with these trees potentially blowing down onto my my roads, my paths, or my home, or wherever I'm concerned about. Or I can just give in and let this corporation um, just come in here and, and further damage because I feel like I have to. And that's something that we often see used as, as, as a pr- kind of pressuring tactic um, to even get people to do logging that, that they weren't really planning to do and may not want to do because they may want a healthy, mature forest. You know, you mentioned the aerial spraying. That seems alarming. And I've actually had it happen near me where we watch those helicopters go back and forth for years at a time after they clear cut. That stuff certainly can't be good for us. And I don't see how with the wash of a helicopter blades and with any wind whatsoever, which happens in the coast range, how they can keep that herbicide on their property. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they can to be honest with you. Um you know, and and we do see that quite a bit and and uh, I don't have exact numbers, but 
um, from my own kind of anecdotal experience in my community or in the forest zone around me, um, they're owned by a whole host of different landowners, and there's clear cuts of all different sizes. Um, but pretty much all of the ones that are corporate and larger have been aerial sprayed anywhere from two to four years um, at one to two times a year um, uh, with with helicopters every time. And so we have a lot of reason to believe that this is, um, you know, the dominant way of treating clear cuts and that it really is happening on, on most of those clear cuts you see. And so you can imagine the amount of these various herbicides, and there's there's a whole number of those herbicides that they could be spraying, and sometimes they may be mixing several of them together. Those are herbicides with names like glyphosate, 2,4-D, um, which is half of the chemical agent orange that everyone knows about, things like atrazine that are actually um, heavily restricted and sometimes uh, and banned in some of the countries that it can be bought from. Um, and, and a lot of these are been labeled as known carcinogens in other states, um, are restricted from being sprayed in other states. I'll tell your listeners of a really, a really specific example of a chemical that we recently stumbled upon being aerial sprayed on Oregon's coast called indazaflam um, that is one of, one of the increasingly common pesticides being used here. And, and, uh, we actually found this being sprayed uh, near a state recreation site um, that's one of the busiest in the state, and it was going to be sprayed aerial, aerially. And so we looked into the chemical, and it turns out that for years the EPA has actually had fact sheets available saying that the active ingredient of indazoflam should not be aerial sprayed. It's too volatile and it's too dangerous and it shouldn't be applied from the sky. But it turns out that what the EPA thinks is uh, is scientifically accurate for these chemicals um, actually has a huge disconnect from what is the law in Oregon. And in Oregon, what our law allows when it comes to aerial spraying and any kind of herbicide use is basically that that applicator um, that's that's using that herbicide, whether it's from a, a, a back of a quad, a backpack, or a helicopter, the rule says that they've got to follow the rules on the label. What that means is that the maker of indazoflam basically gets to write their own rules, and that in this case um, we were not able to stop an aerial application of a chemical that the EPA actually has fact sheets out saying this chemical should never be aerial sprayed because that doesn't actually have any meaning in, in, in Oregon law. And so we see commonly things like that um, with chemicals that have been labeled as carcinogenic by our neighboring states as likely to cause cancer, or even by uh, organizations like the, the the UN or other international bodies um, have have labeled a lot of the chemicals that Oregon allows aerial spraying um, as, as not recommended as such. And so, of course, these things are being sprayed from hundreds of feet in the air off of these booms in a fine mist that come out of the helicopter. Um, as you mentioned, we have pretty much constant changing breezes, especially in these steep forest lands of the Oregon Coast Range. Even when there's not a general wind pattern, just the way the, the air moves on steep these steep slopes, you know, we all know that those are places that have wind. And then, of course, the rotors of the helicopter itself. So these things seem to move around all over the place, as far as we can tell. And we've seen some research um, and evidence that suggests that these things can be moving uh, miles. And it's not just in that initial spray, but even after a chemical hits the ground, it can re-volatilize back into the air in the heat or in the fog. And, of course, if it rains, then all of that stuff gets washed downhill with the rest of the water to impact our sensitive species and our streams and even our people in, in which they could be um, drinking water out of these streams or recreating in water that's in streams below these clear cuts. Well, that's pretty uh, 
scary. You know, if there is a home or a school near one of their clear cuts, are they required to leave a buffer next to those people's homes? Well, it's kind of complicated. Um, if it's a home that somebody, that there's a building that somebody lives in, um, or, or, I'm sorry, when it's a school, uh, the actual buildings of the school do get a 60-foot buffer. Um, 60 feet, that's all, just 60 feet. Yeah, but that's only from the buildings, remember. Um, and so that means that if your school sits on, on a couple of acres like my kid's school does, which is a rural school, um, and the buildings are in the middle of the school, um, but the property line is you know a few hundred feet away from the buildings, and in between that building and that property line is the playground that the kids play on. The playground, uh, the football field, um, the basketball courts, and all of that, they don't necessarily get a buffer, um, and those helicopters could actually be coming and spraying and, and right along the exact line of the property line um, without violating any rules or laws. Well, that could be one of the problems with a school near us, the Melrose grade school had a Lone Rock Timber clear cut right near it, that they're going to be aerial spraying. I wondered how far away, actually from the playground, there's no buffer required from the playground, only from the building itself. It's alarming. There's also, there's also another really kind of, you know, concerning thing about this is there's also no real requirement for the companies that are spraying herbicides to actually notify people who might be impacted with any, inform with any information that helps. And so uh, in the example that you use, the only way, unless there's a special relationship with the company and they've made a direct agreement, the only way for somebody to find out they might be impacted by that spray is to use a complicated online uh, system um, that you have to have an account on, and you have to set up. Uh, you have to you have to set up an area, a specific area um, that you can uh, that you want to pay attention to, or that you're worried about. And then you have to interpret the the information um, that the company applies uh, or provides to the Oregon Department of Forestry. Um, and what they provide when it comes to something like aerial spray is usually a six month window where they say sometime in this six month window, sometime between. Um, sometime between, you know, March and October, we're going to aerial spray um, herbicides on this clear cut. They list six different chemicals that they may or may not spray, and they can show up and start doing that spray on any day within that window, which means with that, no addition, with no additional notification. With, yeah, with nothing in addition. And so back to the school example, my my kids' school where forestry herbicides have been found in the drinking water in the past. Mm. Last year, there was aerial spraying going on all around the school on the first day of school when all the kids were there and coming in and out all day, and mm. um, nobody had any knowledge that that was going to be happening. Nobody at the school had any knowledge that that was going to be happening to prepare kids for that. You know, not only is this stuff that we don't think should be happening in the first place happening, but even things that seem like really common sense protective measures where people can just at least take care of themselves and try to stay out of the way, even that is something that we're not really able to do. Uh, where I live, one of the things that we'd really like to be able to do is put our animals away if there's going to be spraying on a steep ridge above us. We have horses that are outside and, and in a barn um, that are surrounded by industrial forest lands. Uh, we have kids on our property and other farm animals um, as well as our drinking water stream that are all impacted. And so even if we could just get a better notice that we know it's going to happen so we can do things like turn our water intake off for the day, a lot of people definitely like to just get out of the area, at least for the first day, um, which I think, you know, common sense tells us is probably when the exposure is the highest.
Although in the days following, in the heat of the afternoon, it volatilizes and moves around again in the air, in the vicinity. Yeah, or in the coast range, it may not even be that heat, but that fog that we can have um, can really mm-hmm. can really mm-hmm. trap that stuff as it moves through the air and then kind of suspend it and move it long distances. You know, there's a lot of ways that these that these chemicals can move around that that can have impacts for for days or, or weeks after the actual application. And I know that there was a study done in your area to test the amount of herbicides within your bodies, and I I would like to talk about that more as well as how Oregonians tend to suffer more than people in adjacent states where they have a little bit more protective uh, laws. But first, we're going to take a break. We have been talking with Jason Gonzalez with Oregon Wild about the laws that govern private land logging in Oregon. This is your host, Francis Etherington. Okay, we're back. This is Conservation Today, and we are talking with Jason Gonzalez about the Oregon Forest Practices Act and how it impacts rural Oregonians. And we were just talking about the problem with the aerial spraying of chemicals, including some banned in the entire European Union. I understand atrazine is. Yet uh, they can spray it within 60 feet of school buildings and within our homes what happened with the community jason that you live in was a test done on a urine test done on the community there yeah well not right where not right where i live so i wasn't a part of this a part of this testing i should give that disclaimer but just over the hill from me in my neighborhood is the community of triangle lake and the surrounding area um and so in that community uh, there was a number of really interesting things that happened, including having uh, national representatives from the EPA come to the community in order um, to try to do an investigation. In this case, uh, local community members did partner with an expert in the field to conduct a study of, of um, community drinking water and of uh, community members' urine in order to detect if people were consuming these forestry chemicals in their homes. And so they were really able to isolate out um, that, that there were some chemicals found that were coming from forestry practices. And they did find those chemicals in local well water, in local stream water, and ultimately in um, the bodies of, of local community members. Um, there was not a test of all forestry chemicals done because there's so many of them that that's very cost prohibitive. It just gets too expensive for your average, uh, for your average Oregonian to be able to look into. Um, but they did find the chemicals that they were looking for, um, or that, or the chemicals that, that they were, te- that they were able to test for were found in the urine of locals. Those were chemicals that had recently been applied to forests nearby and didn't have any other known use in the area. And so the so- chemicals, the chemicals were actually in the bodies of the residents that lived near this aerial spraying. Which, which particular chemical was tested for? Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was atrazine and 2,4-D because there was some complication in testing for the glyphosate, but I, I could be wrong on that. And so the, this chemical was found in the urine of how many people, and does that include children? 
Yeah, it was found in a number of people. I couldn't tell you exactly how many. There were several households that participated in the study. Um, there was supposed to be further studying done, um, and that wasn't able to happen. This was supposed to kind of be an introductory study that sparked more investigation, and it worked. And so it was found in a number of households from all over the area, including children um, who who were born and raised locally there in the area on their parents' land. Um, you know, and this was supposed to lead to more studies. And one of the interesting things was that it actually did lead to more interest from the EPA. Um, the EPA did get increasingly involved after that study, and and some some other work from from really good folks, including our our Oregon Wild friends and partners at another organization that works on this issue called Beyond Toxics, um, who really helped do a lot of this work and investigation in that area. The EPA did come out to do further investigation. And they set a one-year window where they said they would do testing after aerial spray. Of course, that was something that everyone knew was going to be happening. They had, they had the information available and said we will be doing testing in this area to test for the impacts and traveling of herbicides that are aerial applied on clear cuts. Miraculously, that was a year where we had little to no aerial spraying done in that basin, despite the fact that in years before that year and years since that year, it's been the dominant method of, of, of plant control on clear cutting. And so, Is that intentional by the industry? Not to so it sure it, seems that way. It sure seems that we had, we actually had EPA willing to spend a one year window doing chemical testing that they otherwise don't do. Um, and in that one-year window, we had a very magical one year in one very specific place that aerial spraying was not happening, despite the fact that it happened. Every, uh, not only was it happening in years before and after that, but it's been happening at, an, at, a, at a steadily increasing pace. And so every year they use more and more and spray more and more, except the one year where the EPA said that they would actually show up and do some testing for us. Well, that is an amazing study where, where, where it was found in the urine of an entire community and their children. It would be a very frightening thing to be in that community. I understand that people living in other states, I mean, this is only a rural Oregonian issue, maybe. Is, is it only in Oregon that these atrocities happen? Um, well, I think it's only in, in in Oregon in this part of the in, it's in this part of the world. It's only in Oregon that they're happening so bad. So I don't want to say that people in neighboring states aren't exposed to industrial logging and aerial spray, but all of our neighboring states have stricter rules than Oregon. Not only on the way the chemicals are used, but the way that the logging is done overall. Uh, so, for example. In, in, in Oregon, logging plans, um, are not something, you know, if you want to clear cut 120 acres that are, a, that are the headwall of an entire stream network, all you have to do is tell the Oregon Department of Forestry that you're going to do it. You don't have to apply for a permit. You don't have to go under any kind of environmental review um, or any kind of application process where there's any kind of oversight. In fact, all you have to do is tell the Oregon Department of Forestry that you're going to do it and say that you're going to follow the rules, um, and, and that's, that's it. You submit a notice of intent um, rather than an application um, or permit request 
And so one of the big, one of the biggest differences from neighboring states is, is that's not the case in in, in our neighboring states in general. Um, in Washington and California, um, you actually have to submit a plan that's approved, which means that experts who are not just looking out for corporate profits and Wall Street uh, bottom lines are actually able to look over the plan and make sure that it's safe, make sure that it's in line with the law, and make sure that it ecologically is doing as little damage as possible. Other examples are in Washington, um, those steep headwalls of streams are often protected um, at a much higher rate. Now, Washington does have a clear-cutting problem, but they are protecting streams better than Oregon does. And then when it comes to the aerial application of herbicides, like we discussed in Oregon, um, the, the, big, the buffer that places that people and schools get from aerial spray um, is feet, and and maybe an occasional specific situations could be up to a hundred feet. In um, California, right now, there's a rulemaking process going on that would give school grounds a quarter mile, so that's over a thousand feet of protection. Um, in Idaho, that already exists for schools. Um, homes and or and farms, they automatically get a quarter mile of protection. And so, we're talking about neighboring states having having over, uh, you know, well over ten times the level of protection from aerial herbicides that we have in our state. Um, and then we also see better regulations on things like steep slopes logging after the infamous o- Oslo uh, Ozo. <clears throat> After the infamous uh, Oso landslide in Washington, um, where kind of an entire community um, was hit from a landslide on uh, off the side of a mountain, um, the, that state ran ahead and redid a major overhaul on on their steep slopes logging rules. Um, that and and that is something that Oregon hasn't done. And in fact, um, Oregon has some pretty even after some updates in the 90s. Mostly, our landslide and steep slopes logging laws are fairly lax. Uh, other states also require smaller openings or leaving more trees behind when you log. And so there's a there's a whole number of ways that we can compare to our state neighboring states. Um, but in all of those different comparisons, we find that neighboring states do a better job of protecting their streams, their forests, their wildlife, and their people uh, from the dangerous impacts of, of logging. Of The Oregon Forest Practices Act, one of the things you'll often hear the industry here brag about is that we were one of the first in the nation to actually implement a strict Forest Practices Act. And if we were going to go back to 1970, I think that's something that we could applaud ourselves for. But in 1972, when the OFPA was implemented, we were still painting our houses with lead. We've learned a lot since then about about the science of chemicals. We've learned a lot since then about the science of forests and water. And the updates that the OFPA has had since then have been incredibly minimal. One of the last ones that we that we had here, I watched for months as experts in fisheries, as experts in, in streams, um, went before the Board of Forestry to say that, that, that certain streams needed at least 120 to 150 feet of protections on each side in order for some threatened fish that were under consideration to survive. That was obviously very clearly the scientific consensus in that case. 
ultimately the Board of Forestry approved um, approved a update to the rules that brought us up to 60 to 80 feet of protections on those streams that are so desperately in need of protection. And so that's just one specific example of uh, over the last 40 years, we've had these small updates to the Oregon Forest Practices Act, um, but I, I think at best what we've gotten is about half of what the science says we need. And so that that's continued for decades, leaving us in a place where our, 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 our what used to be one of the first and strongest in the nation Forest Practices Act has actually fallen way behind all of our neighboring states um, and has really swung towards uh, protecting corporations from Wall Street, um, trying to make profits rather than communities, uh, streams, and fish, which of course has a huge impact on other industries that are trying to make a living in, in rural Oregon. You know, I've seen two updates to the Oregon Forest Practices Act in the 40 years that I've been here, and one was in the 90s that you alluded to when a landslide out of the clear cut killed a family um, below, we killed four people. Their, their children were able to run away, but not the adults, and they were all killed. And then uh, so we updated the Oregon Forest Practices Act to say that if there could be a landslide that could kill people below, you have to leave 50% of the trees on that slope. But it really doesn't apply very much. And the other update is you also talked about the Ripstream study, and that was the Oregon Department of Forestry's own study of water coming out of clear cuts. They determined that it was so hot, violated Oregon's clean water standards. And we got another very, very minor increase in buffers for that study, and it only applied to a very tiny part of Oregon. The Ripstream study only did plots in northwest Oregon, and so that's the only place that they're going to increase the stream buffers, even though we know it applies everywhere else. What is the actual... Um, stream buffer in Washington State for streams, you know? The different types of streams get different types of protections, but what it is, what is easy to say is that uh, Washington does goes quite a bit farther in um, in those protections. Actually, in California and Washington, large fish-bearing streams get up to about 200 feet of protection on on each side of the of the river, um, where there's some types of rules that require leaving trees behind. And so that doesn't mean that they can't work there. It means they. It usually means they can't clear cut there. Um, and in Washington, there's there's multiple different classes that get different stream protections, but the smallest stream protection in Washington is about 50 feet, I believe, um, where the smallest stream protection in Oregon is zero feet. Um, so streams that we don't protect at all in Oregon uh, might get up to 50, might might be getting still 50 feet or more of protection in Washington. That same that straight that same stream in California might, again, be getting up to 100 feet. Um, and, of course, that is all. Even those other state rules are actually still well below what we might see on those same size streams on, on federal lands where we are actually seeing some recovery of fish species and some, some protection of cold water. Well, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the impacts of private land logging in Oregon. Uh, 
This is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we are talking with Jason Gonzalez, the Forest and Watershed Campaign Organizer for Oregon Wild. We'll be right back. We are back talking with Jason Gonzalez. Jason works with Oregon Wild, and he concentrates on the issues with the Oregon Forest Practices Act. Thanks for talking with us, Jason. And we were just talking about how the laws in uh, Washington, California, and even Idaho are so much more protective of forest and fish and people than our laws in Oregon. Do you know how that came about? Well, you know, one of the things we always like to say here is, you know, I, I think logging in Oregon is like, it's like, you know, coal in Appalachia. It's like the railroad in the, the late 1800s. You know, we're talking about an industry um, that had an entire generation or more um, to write all the rules themselves and make all their own, you know, make all their own decisions and to really become a major source of political power in a way um, that it's been very hard to actually regulate them in a way that most people agree is very sensible. And so that's that's been a really big challenge. And I think uh, one of the ways that we see that really clearly and how entrenched it is in Oregon in particular compared to our neighboring states is in the way that it works out for our communities, not just not just in how our communities are potentially harmed by those activities, but in the ways that we don't benefit from those activities. Um, in the past, Oregonians did have a stake in this a lot more than they do today, and that's because 50 years ago, logging was was the major and important industry of the state. And not only was it a major job provider, but it was a major source of tax revenue. So it was a major source of, of funding roads, of funding schools, of funding county services, and of funding all of those things that we need. And so I think that people were a little more willing to look the other way than they are today. And that's because what actually has happened in, in modern times is that in the mid-90s, um, Oregon went a completely different def- different direction than other states and actually started giving giant tax breaks to the timber industry to the point that at this point, almost all of the tax revenue that the timber industry um, pays just goes right back to them in a really clever maneuver. They've actually been able to make it so that the majority of the tax revenue that they, that they spend goes back um, to a couple of different categories. One of those categories is in administering and enforcing the Oregon Forest Practices Act. Um, and so a lot of the tax base that they're paying goes straight back to enforcing and administering logging in Oregon. Another big chunk of that goes to the Oregon State University Forestry School, um, which is basically the source of foresters for the forest industry. Now, because so much of the forestry school's funding comes from logging companies, uh, we have an interesting situation where the forestry school tends, tends to have scientific studies that generate completely different results from everybody else's studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, they might study the impacts of clear cutting on a stream network. Um, other other parts of the other parts of the university or other universities um, research might show that clear cutting has a damaging impact on streams, as you would expect. Um, but magically, the forestry school who gets their money from the timber industry finds a different result, and so a lot of the the tax goes back to them. Then, thirdly. A percentage of the tax goes to fight fires on their own land, 
Um, so again, it's just coming straight back to them, firefighting on their own property. And then the, a big chunk of it, about 25% on average, but it changes year to year, goes to fund a really interesting program. Um, or it's actually, technically, it's a government agency, and it's called the Oregon Forest Resources Institute, and I'll call it OFRI, and that's for the Oregon Forest Resources Institute. OFRI gets all of its funding from the timber industry, quote-unquote, taxes, but it's also made up of a board that's legally required to be made up almost entirely of timber industry representatives. And what OFRI does is they put out TV commercials, they put out fancy, glossy publications, they put out Internet commercials, um, they host events, they go to schools and give presentations. And, of course, all of these things they're putting out, they all talk about how great the timber industry in Oregon is. They talk about how we have strong, the strongest stream protections in the world, despite the fact that that's clearly as we've demonstrated, clearly untrue just even on a local level looking at our neighbors. Now, it may be easy to say we have strong forest regulations when we're comparing ourselves to a place in the world that literally has no government or rules, but when we look at places that actually make sense to compare to, like other developed nations or our neighboring states that also have large forests to log, we very clearly see that we're way behind. And so we, But we see this, this quote-unquote government agency actually collecting 25% of the taxes that the timber industry pays in order to travel all around the state and west coast hosting conferences about how great the timber industry is, putting those commercials that you've probably seen on the internet or on the television where there's this magical drinking water fountain in the middle of the woods <laughs> and some kid is drinking out of it, or where, where you know, Joe Lager from whatever uh, company is standing there with a pitcher of water in a stream. What you'll notice they don't usually show are the clear cuts that actually dominate the landscape. And anyone who questions whether or not those clear cuts dominate the landscape can really quickly settle the argument by hopping onto Google Earth satellite view and zooming out just to where you can just see parts of the coast range of Oregon and you can see that it's actually really heavily dominated that way. But so we've had some economists take a look at this, and what we found is that there's actually $40 million a year in taxes that aren't being paid to Oregon that are being paid in Washington, despite the fact that the same companies are operating in Washington and Oregon. Now, when we try to raise, when we talk about taxes in Oregon, of course, those companies scream and shout that we're, we'll kill their industry and destroy jobs and, and completely ruin the state's economy if we were to raise those taxes. But these same companies are, are already operating under a, under a different tax burden in other states that didn't give them those giant tax breaks back in the mid-90s. And that's why we see schools in rural Oregon struggling for funding, why our roads are falling apart, is because the industry that for a generation or two really dominated our economy, it's not because environmental regulations um, cut them off. It's because they stopped, they stopped being charged any taxes by our state that actually benefit our state and now only pay taxes that benefit them. And so there's there's this this huge disconnect from our again from our neighboring states in in even what we expect the timber industry to give back to us for the damage that they're doing, and this can have some pretty huge impacts on small rural communities. One of the really obvious one of the really big examples that we use is the community of Rockaway Beach, where with this very small neighborhood on the north coast had to put in over about a million and a half dollars. Um, in in work to to update their drinking water filtration system because in the last 15 years um 
their their drinking watershed that's have that's almost all privately owned uh, over 85% of it was clear cut logged just in the last just in the last 15 years mm. and so during that time after all that heavy logging of course the siltation and sedimentation started coming down eroding off the hills and it wreaked havoc on their drinking water systems and of course the timber industry pays zero dollars to update that drinking water system. That falls solely on the burden of local landowners and local taxpayers, um, who in this community are often retired elderly folks, um, who now not only can't drink their water, but are also having to pay extra in order to undo the damage that's been caused by the timber industry. That's really something. That's the $40 million annually. Is that what you say that we used to get that we're now missing well, that's what we would get. That's what we would get if we had the same taxes as Washington. We would be. Mm-hmm. So this is just a, a tax rate that's considered normal in a neighboring state for the same industry, and that's forty million dollars that would go directly back to Oregon's rural counties where the logging is actually happening. Yeah. And so we used to get that money, and we don't get it anymore. But I've heard the timber industry say, "Well, we're job providers. We provide, you know, mill jobs." That's yeah, true. they used to. Um I think that the I think that the timber industry um really did at one time in history uh provide an enormous amount of jobs to the state, but the fact is at this point they don't. Right now logging provides something like 25,000 jobs in the state of Oregon. That sounds like an awful lot until you look at other industries and see what a real job numbers look like in Oregon. And in fact, the craft brewing industry at this point is not only providing more jobs in the state, but it's providing much more taxes and economic rewards for the state and the communities they operate in. And I use the brewing industry as a specific example because this is the this is an industry that now is heavily benefiting rural Oregon with jobs and, and economic resources that is being negatively impacted by the fact that there's um, damaging activities going on in the watershed. Of course, beer is almost entirely water. It's 99% of it of what's in that glass is just water. And if your water source has been devastated by clear-cut logging, that really destroys your opportunity to make a good beer. At this point, things like um, things like hiking and fishing are providing more jobs, in, more more jobs, not just more activity, but more jobs in some parts of the state than the logging industry is. So what we've seen over the last you know 20 years is actually just that this industry isn't a jobs creator; it's a jobs killer, and it has nothing to do with environmental regulations. Um, it has to do with with simple automation that that a lot of the a lot of various industries are experiencing, and it has to do with exporting um, whole unmilled logs overseas so that they can actually just be milled somewhere else where it's really cheap, where nobody's paying attention to how much they're p- paying mill workers, and we're actually taking jobs away from mill workers here, having things milled back overseas, and then and then Oregon is buying those products back at a premium to again profit that same company by buying, having to buy those products back when, when they sent them overseas to be milled at a cheaper rate. Um, and so between automation and, and outsourcing of jobs by shipping logs overseas, the jobs numbers in this industry are just plummeting. And so we're really just seeing that we're losing a lot to this industry. We're losing our soil. We're losing our water. We're losing our clean air. Um, and then where we used to at least be getting back, you know, the money to have the school have fresh paint on it and the road have have the potholes filled. At this point, we don't even get that benefit back to help kind of um, to help kind of offset that damage that's being done. Right. I mean, those of us who live near Coos Bay can see the ships there at port 
with a huge, and then the dock with a huge amount of logs daily going onto those ships and being shipped out of the country by uh, warehouser or other um, companies that don't buy federal logs. They're allowed to export their logs, and so this used to come to our local mills. And not only do now they don't have to pay a harvest tax anymore, they ship most of the most of their logs, like warehouse, are overseas. So we don't even get those local jobs anymore. Yeah, and again, that's another big difference, like you mentioned, with from the federal land. You know, I think one thing that I hear a lot in rural Oregon is 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 some some concern about how much you know how federal land and federal management might actually be having a negative impact on economies or jobs. But the reality is that our private landowners, our these private companies like um, that 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 aren't harvesting federal land, they're actually the ones that are shipping our jobs overseas, where the the, the logs that come off of that federal land that would be illegal the logs that are the the trees that are logged on federal land on our national forests um, in places like the 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 umqua or um, the rogue or our other national forests those are actually required to be milled in oregon by oregonians into a into a usable wood product and so it's actually those public lands that are protecting our jobs that are protecting our workers that are creating that financial reward for oregonians where these corporations that are largely just dominated by Wall Street at this point, they're really just shipping those jobs out and trying to dodge paying any tax that they can. Are you familiar with that study on the fire risk that came out recently? Yeah, I am. And so there was a a study published by the Southern Oregon-based GEOS Institute the higher the level of protection is on a forest, meaning the less heavily or intensely logged it is, the less intensely it burns. Um, I think that based on some of the political rhetoric that people hear, they may find that statement a little confusing, but it's actually pretty simple. Those big, giant, old trees that have been around for 500 years have lived through a lot of fires. They have big, thick bark. They don't have trees. They don't have branches down close to the ground. Um, they have a shady, cool, moist forest floor that doesn't dry out as quickly, where everyone's familiar with what a plantation looks like. And those are trees that, instead of being 200 feet tall with with branches 100 feet off the ground and and bark that's 18 inches thick, they're trees that are 50 feet tall. Their branches are touching each other. Their dead branches go all the way down to the ground, and they're actually incredibly thin and 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 you know kind of small puny trees compared to the old growth and mature forests. And so we see that actually those plantations that are considered heavily managed forests actually burn more intensely and more severely than those those older mature forests that you're more likely to find on public lands. So when you see those headlines in the local paper coming from the local politician or from our Eastern Oregon representative who likes to to be in the news for this a lot, who are saying, you know, we need more management because these fires are so scary, um, what they're not telling you is that the science is the exact opposite and that actually that more heavily managed forest is going to burn a lot worse um, than those forests that are more protected. Other OSU research that really demonstrated the importance of carbon storage in those older forests um, also demonstrated that those more mature forests that are not so young, they hold a temperature throughout the summer that might be five to six degrees lower than in those even-aged canopy plantations where all the trees are the same age and really short. 
And so we have all of these studies that show the older forests store more carbon than, this, than the plantations do. Um, they, they store more water and suck less water out of streams because they're able to store it from the winter so they don't have to draw it up in the summer. Um, they're much less, the, the older forests burn much less severely um, and they also hold that, that lower temperature in the summer that can really provide refuge for wildlife as well as people that are trying to escape the extreme heat that we're facing in our modern summers. There was also a study done right here in Douglas County, I believe by Oregon State University and Humboldt University together. It was in the Douglas Complex fire of three years ago. And it was again on checkerboarded land, BLM and private timber industry. So they found in that study that the plantations burn much more intensely than the non-managed forests of the BLM lands. So, so it just adds to the number of studies that have shown this. And so there's no way to clear-cut our way out of the fire problem. The reality is we live in northwest forests that have evolved with fire in our ecosystems, and our, our forests need fire to thrive. But it's really important that we protect communities and people from the dangerous impacts of smoke. And with climate change, we're seeing bigger, more intense, and worse fires that are harder for us to deal with. And so what we really have to do is look at how we can actually use fire year-round in order to make it so that our communities aren't suffering at the hands of smoke just in this concentrated time in the summer when fires really get out of control and, and, and just rage through and, and really blanket us with smoke. Because we can't we can't really effectively eliminate fire from our landscape. It's probably just not possible, and our, our forests need it to be healthy. But we can work with fire in order to do thinning and burning projects in times where we can manage the smoke, um, reduce the likelihood of bigger conflagrations later, um, and really work together with our ecosystems in order to make it work for us and the ecosystem. There's one other study I'd like to talk about real quickly, because we're almost running out of time, but you alluded to the low flow water in the summertime. Um, could you give a summary of that low flow study? Oh, yeah, and this is such an important one in, in Douglas County where I think some of the work on this was done. And this, again, is a study that came, um, that the work mostly came from Oregon State University, so this is a, a local one for us. And what, what they found in this study is that um, by comparing different watersheds um, with different types of logging in them, they found that, um, that plantation, clear-cut and plantation logging has a huge impact on stream flow, and it, it has two different impacts. And what those impacts are are for the first five to ten years, um, a, a stream that has a lot of clear-cutting around it will actually have bigger flooding and high-flow events in the winter um, that really cause damage downstream. And we've seen a lot of that on the Oregon coast in recent years. I know especially where I spend a lot of time up on the north coast, that's been a really big deal um, with winter storms bringing flooding and landslides and major movement of debris, um, you know, wiping out roads, clogging culverts, destroying salmon habitat, ruining drinking water systems. And we see that impact for about five or ten years when those trees are still really small. And then from the age of 10 to at least the age of about 50, so for about 40 years, we see that in the summer months when those uh, temperatures are a little higher, that we can see a stream flow reduction, meaning there's less water in the stream of about of up to 50% for about 40 years. 
we have to remember those big trees, they get to suck up all that water all winter and store it in their massive branches and their thick, um, their thick wood. They have a lot of storage capacity. They also have a lot of shade, and they have a really healthy soil that can store water. Once you've clear-cut something, run machinery all over it and sprayed it with herbicides to make sure that the forest floor is dead and you only have these small, close-together, fast-growing trees that dry out in the summer, they have to suck so much water out of the stream year-round that they're really sucking our streams dry in the winter. That's new information um, that, that a lot of people have suspected in the past, but this new study provided a lot more specific information on it. So plantations can cause low flows for up to 50 years. That yeah, is and it's a big incredible. it's a big difference in flow. I mean, we're talking about not not a small reduction. We're talking about the stream being cut down to half the size of what it should be. Amazing. Are there any reform efforts going on in the Oregon legislature to help reform the Oregon Forest Practices Act? Oh yeah, there is so much going on with this. I think that it could spin people's heads a little bit. And that's really exciting because I don't think that that was the case not too long ago. But in the last, um, you know, five to ten years, we started to see more and more rural communities really start to complain about what was going on in the industrial forest lands. There's a really big focus on the aerial spraying component, and so that's what people hear us talking about the most. Um, But we really are putting in a lot of work to do things like have much more protections for streams. So there's been various efforts both uh, through ballot initiatives as well as through the legislature to pass new laws. I think we'll see some more of those come back in 2019, but it's hard to say exactly which right now. But it's definitely something for folks to pay attention to. And there's a couple of really good ways to monitor that. But one of the easiest ways to get involved, um, to support that work, and then to stay abreast of what's going on would be to go to clearcutoregon.com. And at clearcutoregon.com, folks can can learn about the different groups that are working on this. They can see some videos to understand what we're talking about and scientific uh, citations for our resources. But they can also sign a petition that calls for an update of of Oregon's logging laws. And again, that's www.clearcutoregon.com. Another really great way for folks um, to pay attention to what's going on in your community. We talked a lot about um, the the FERN system, which is the name of the online system that people can use in order to monitor what's going on around them. And like I said earlier, it can be a little complicated to use. But if folks go to the website sprayfreecoast.org, which is just all spelled out, sprayfreecoast.org, they can find information about um, the coastal community groups that are working to reform the Oregon Forest Practices Act. But they can also find some really helpful instructional uh, information about how to use the FERN system. If you're afraid to approach a system like that because you're not very technologically savvy, I encourage you to check it out anyways and just give us a call if you need help. And again, those websites are clearcutoregon.com and sprayfreecoast.org. And those are two really great websites to take a look at. And if people want to contribute financially to your efforts, are there donation buttons on those pages or would they go to the Oregon Wild page? Um, you, you could contribute on ClearCut Oregon, or yes, you could also check out our main site at OregonWild.org, where you can find a lot of information, not only about our, our efforts to reform the Oregon Forest Practices Act, but also information on our work to protect important species like salmon and other wildlife in Oregon, um, and the work that we do to protect those public lands that are so important to rural Oregon that we were discussing earlier. Well, thank you, Jason. This has been a fascinating interview. 
thanks so much for for having me on here, and thanks so much to your listeners for for listening to all I had to say. I, I know that was a lot of information, so I really encourage folks to check out those websites where you can find us spelled out a little more plainly than my rambling. Okay, well, we've been talking with Jason Gonzalez uh, from Oregon Wild, who is the Forest and Watershed Campaign Organizer for Oregon Wild. Thank you, Jason Gonzalez. This is Francis Etherington, your host for Conservation Today, and we'll be back again in two weeks.